But when you look at the fundamentals, which is where I spend most of my time, today you have 100 billion plus in stable coins on, on chain. Changes like Coinbase have 100 million plus. MetaMask has 10 million plus mouths. Ethereum L1, depending on how you classify it, has a few hundred K daily active users, hundreds of dApps that are that are out there today. And then you have stuff like the merge, huge uh, step forward in computer science and human, human coordination. And, and even the DeFi in 2022, really we saw a failure of human coordination and human behavior, uh, centralized risk, counterparty risk, risk management. A lot of the core DeFi primitives, Uniswap, Aave, MakerDAO, all held up very well during this volatility. So in many ways, I look at what we have today, which is hundreds of dApps, uh, hundreds of thousands of daily active addresses. You know, a lot of this infrastructure like stable coins, oracles, wallets have all been built. You compare that with 2017, we had nothing really. I mean, absolutely nothing except trading some tokens on an exchange and you send ETH to your ICO, ICO contract. So I think if you take a step back, you realize how far we've come. And I think a lot of times the media and Twitter is so focused on short term, they don't zoom out and realize how much progress we've made over the past couple of years. They just focus on the failures of 2022 and don't realize like really the, the progress is like this. It's never like like that. Well, today I'm super excited to be joined by Anjan, uh, working at Parify and all your insights into the market, uh, what you have kind of been thinking about and kind of how you've approached the last couple of years, because it's obviously been kind of a crazy space. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on, Logan. Looking forward to it. Perfect. Well, I would love to start a little bit with your background. I think everybody kind of approaches it from a different point of view. Uh, engineers come at it from one point, traders another. So I would love personally like describing like how you kind of got into the crypto world and what made you kind of fall in love with the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I got into crypto first uh, around 2016. And really the one of the first use cases that stood out to me uh, was the use case of remittances. So I was exploring sending money to you know family in India and other parts of the world, um, and there were multiple services out there, uh, MoneyGram, uh, Wire, and they, you know you, you pay a massive amount of fees to get the the money from you know your bank account all the way to their bank account. There were a couple of companies at the time, including BitPesa, that were using Bitcoin um, as a tool to send money uh, across borders. I thought that was super fascinating because it took far less time to settle. It was potentially cheaper. Looking back, you know, arguably not a great use case given the volatility of Bitcoin. Um, but again, using the blockchain rails, that was something that really stood out to me. So got in the space first in, in 2016, really run the use case of remittances and payments focused on the Bitcoin side. Um, I would say where the space really captivated me was Ethereum uh, around 2017. So this was right before the ICO boom, just spending time looking at different projects in the space. Um, how some of the Ethereum roadmap items are progressing along uh, and just kind of rode through the, the ICO boom as, as well and saw some good, a lot of bad, but ultimately came away still very bullish on this space. Um, and so, yeah, I, I joined Parify, you know, mid-2019, so coming up on, on four years now with, with Parify. Um, and before that was involved with strategy and ops at a few startups. Uh, and then before that was doing research in the blockchain space at at UC Berkeley, that's what really pulled me into the space full time. Excellent. Uh, yeah, no, the remittance use cases, I mean, I think arguably probably still the highest kind of use case of crypto today, uh, just with moving money from any point in the world. Un unfortunate that I think Bitcoin was a 
probably not the best use for that, as you mentioned, but uh, Ethereum during 2017 uh, also captivated me. I was definitely a little bit later to the train than probably you were. Uh, I kind of caught the t tail end of that bull cycle, but I, uh, keeping with it through that uh, bear market was probably the best thing that I could have done personally. And what decided, I mean, obviously, from 2017 to 2018, I mean, most crypto assets fell 90, 95%. What got you excited personally during that time frame to join Parify? Yeah, so as I was thinking about opportunity, so I knew I wanted to join the space. I mean, even with prices being down, um, I got in when, you know, got into the space really before the ICO boom, before everything was about prices. And so naturally, when prices were down, you know, 80%, uh, it starts to really test your conviction. I remember in fall, 2018, Bitcoin hits like three, three and a half K and CNBC's writing articles. Hey, Bitcoin may be dead. We've all, we've all seen those articles. So it really tests your conviction. So as I was thinking about opportunities in the space, uh, obviously super nascent asset class, everything is super early. I figured a spot on the investing side lets you see the asset class grow uh, from a macro perspective, right? So you could, as you think about joining opportunities in the space, you could join as a developer, you could build something, you could join as an operations person join a early stage startup in this space. I was excited to be a part of that action, but I didn't want to silo myself into one specific vertical or project, given how early the asset class was. So I wanted to kind of zoom out and spend time on multiple different verticals. And so when the opportunity came, you know, came up to join Parify very, very early on, I figured you kind of get the benefits of helping to build something, joining something really early on. But then my day-to-day -day job, I'm not siloed on a specific vertical in crypto or specific product. I'm looking at hundreds, thousands of different projects and opportunities. And that was, uh, that was super exciting. And I would say probably my favorite part of, uh, of the job here at Verify is just working with our founders, supporting them, helping them work through challenges, thinking through product ideas. It's some of the most fun and creative work I've, I've ever done. I would to totally echo all that uh, sentiment. Um, definitely agree. On So, I mean, I guess being exposed to multiple cycles now, how has your kind of change, how has seeing these cycles play out? How has that kind of changed your thought process, if any? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I think about this current cycle, per se, um, 2023, we, we obviously went through a rough 2022 price-wise, but there's a lot of positives that came out of the space that you know we're, we're going to unpack. But as you think about where we are today, you know, crypto today is around a $1.1 trillion asset class. You back out stable coins. We're basically less than a trillion. I mean, this is not even, uh, it's barely rounding error for most financial asset, uh, assets out there, stocks, bonds, real estate, et cetera. I mean, gold itself is a $10 trillion plus asset. And Pretty if you crazy. Take all of liquid crypto, you know, one trillion, we're basically at the market cap of Google, right? That includes all DeFi, all NFTs, gaming, Bitcoin, Ethereum. We're basically at the market cap of Google. So when you compare crypto from an asset class perspective, we're still very early and, and very small, which is, you know, I think it's what gets everyone quite excited about this space. But when you look at the fundamentals, which is where I, where I spend most of my time, you know, today you have a hundred billion plus in stable coins on, on chain. Huge advantage that you have this on chain economy now. You didn't have that in the ICO days. You just had ETH and, you know, people were sending ETH to contract. Changes like Coinbase have a hundred million plus. Uh, registered users. You probably have five to 10 monthly transacting users. MetaMask has 10 million plus miles. Ethereum L1, depending on how you classify it, has a few hundred K daily active users. Of course, there's some overlap 
and some double counting with the layer twos out there. But think conservatively, you can say there's a few hundred K daily active addresses on, on Ethereum today, hundreds of dApps that are, that are out there today. The, um, the electric capital developer report, um, I think the number was 20 or 25 K monthly active developers, uh, which I think is a great report. I urge everyone to go check that out because it shows you as the price goes down, we still saw growth in the number of active developers, which is, which is huge. And then you have stuff like the merge, huge uh, step forward in computer science and human, human coordination, stuff like Reddit, you know, having the 5 million, uh, you know, collectibles with their NFT uh, product. Um, and, and even DeFi in 2022, it, really we saw a failure of human coordination and human behavior. Right, uh, centralized risk, counterparty risk, risk management. A lot of the core DeFi primitives, Uniswap, Aave, MakerDAO, all held up very well during this volatility. So, in many ways, I look at what we have today, which is hundreds of DApps, uh, hundreds of thousands of daily active addresses. You know, a lot of this infrastructure, like stable coins, oracles, wallets, have all been built. You compare that with 2017, we had nothing really. I mean, yeah. absolutely nothing except trading some tokens on an exchange. And you send ETH to your ICO ICO contract. So I think if you take a step back, you realize how far we've come. And I think a lot of times the media and Twitter is so focused on short term, they don't zoom out and realize how much progress we've made over the past couple of years. They just focus on the failures of 2022 and don't realize like really the the progress is like this. It's never like like that. I, I fully, fully agree. I think Ultimately, yeah, from 2018 to 2022 is night and day difference from uh, the product perspective. Uh, I think Make or Die launched in December of 2017, uh, but that was like really only one of the few applications that was like actually live. Majority of the DeFi primitives that we know and love today were probably mostly built throughout that bear market uh, and ultimately with compound kicking off DeFi summer um, kind of the catalyst for this, but yeah, totally, totally agree. Uh, One thing that I'm also very interested in is like the daily active addresses. And I think that's probably one of the more important metrics to be looking at in this space from like a user adoption standpoint, going from say like couple low, couple hundred thousands of, like um, daily active or weekly active addresses, what do you think will be the main catalysts or things that you're looking forward to to really drive adoption on-chain? So I think there's a couple of couple of different ways to, to answer that. Um, from 2018 till around 2021, I think a lot of the core infrastructure really on L1s and L2s needed to be built out, right? Like until an application couldn't actually support millions or tens of millions of users, until you had the core block space built out, different scalability solutions, all the infrastructure on L1s and L2s, still a work in progress. I think we're actually now finally at a point where we could support applications with seven to eight figures in terms of daily active users or now. It's it's still a little bit clunky. It's not going to be great. But I mean, Axie had you know two to three million DAOs um, at its peak, which is which is promising, right? So I think today there's been a lot of focus on the infrastructure, but I think what we're really missing is just killer applications that people want to use outside of speculation, right? So I look at DeFi summer, I look at the NFT kind of uh, craze we saw in 2020 and 2021. And a lot of that was driven by speculation, right? Even like the Axie infinities of the world, people were speculating and earning tokens on Python. I think which is okay in the early days, 
But if you talk about scaling from a couple hundred thousand or a million to 10, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, there needs to be some other utility or long-term value where people are coming on chain and participating without any speculation or any kind of immediate profit-seeking you know, behavior. I actually think a couple of different verticals could, could kick that off. So I'm quite constructive on blockchain gaming, um, a little bit less so on you know just releasing a token in, in a new game and getting people to come on chain, but establish you know existing games, then implementing tokens, token economies, NFTs, Web3 components, bringing those players on chain. I think that could actually be a massive driver in terms of new users coming on chain. I actually see in many ways DeFi becoming more B2B or more of backend. Like, do I see a hundred million people figuring out MetaMask, deploying on Aave Compound? I'm not sure. I don't know if that's the ideal flow for them to come into the space versus you have a neobank or a wallet or some some product, consumer-facing product that abstracts away what Aave and Compound is, or just using those two examples, and you just deposit dollars or euros and you get access to the yield. Um, so that means there's actually less people coming on chain versus entities that are aggregating that activity and then posting it on chain. Um, stuff on the, I would say social is, is also quite interesting. Um, we're still trying to figure out what that exact use case is for Web3 and social. But to me, we're, when we talk about getting an absolute number of addresses on chain up, I think it's going to be more gaming, social oriented. In terms of capital activity, financial activity, I could see that becoming a lot more aggregated and more B2B. So that we may not have 100 million addresses tied to DeFi, and that's okay. We may have 10,000 large institutions using DeFi in the back end with hundreds of millions of users kind of indirectly using DeFi. Yeah, that all definitely makes sense. I Maybe before jumping like a little bit deeper into like DeFi, gaming, and social, um, yeah. on a high level, I, I definitely agree that... Um, we're kind of constrained by block space. And now that's no longer, at least there's different alternatives to uh, kind of scaling applications now today. On how do you think about like these different ecosystems more broadly and like different layer twos um, and like scaling that infrastructure component, because there has been so much money actually invested in like scaling and then uh, happy to jump back into like, um, the more uh, trends that we were just discussing. Yeah. So, so my view right now is I, th I think we're a little bit too early to declare an ecosystem as a winner per se. I know there are some groups out there who are um, almost religiously tied to one ecosystem. And my view is that it's a little bit too early to say which ecosystem is going to win, whether it's an L1, whether it's an L2, just given we have a couple hundred thousand people on chain. I mean, we're, this is such a small, set of users that we don't really know what the users want and prefer. So I think adoption of L1s and L2s won't be driven as much as by community or sentiment like it is today. I think it'll be where do developers go? And developers are going to go to the places where, you know, performance is there, scalability is there, how easy is it to develop? Is it stable? Does the chain stay up? Um, what are the other pieces of infrastructure or network effects that I can benefit from building in this ecosystem? You don't want to build in an island. You want to build, in, you know, a bridge or an area where there's other, uh, you know, players involved. Um, so I think net net, it's a little bit too early to say who, who's who's going to win. Um, I would say personally, I am a little bit more constructive on what, what I'm seeing in the ETH L2 space. Um, you know, more recently with Base, but with all all the stuff going on with Arbitrum, Optimism, with zk Sync, 
there's a lot going on there and the network effects with all the Ethereum infrastructure is really kind of winning as, as of now. But again, I think it's too early to say that Ethereum has won per se, just given how early we are in the adoption cycle. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, I, I, yeah, totally agree there. Um, and then maybe jumping back to, I mean, some of the trends that you think will catalyze adoption. The big things, I mean, at least that you mentioned on a high level with DeFi gaming and kind of social, uh, you talked about DeFi primarily being used as like back infrastructure and maybe like less kind of people on use, utilizing it on the front end infrastructure. Could you maybe go a little bit deeper into that? Because I definitely think uh, that is one possibility of how things play out, but something that not very many people are actually thinking about today. Yeah, I, I, I think this is, um, you know, when, when I think about like the super app thesis or even just financial applications today, how much is actually abstracted away, whether it's wallets like PayPal and our banking apps today. I think users want a lot of features abstracted away. I don't think they need the nitty gritty um, in terms of what's going on for the vast majority of users. Um, I still think there'll be a small set of subset of users who want, you know, this exact functionality, a lot of customization. So. When you think about DeFi today, let's walk through it the workflow of actually getting money on Compound or Aave, right? You you have to deposit dollars in an exchange, go through that whole KYC process, open a non-custodial wallet, store your private key somewhere safe, which you know most people can't even remember their passwords, and now you're telling them to remember this code that you know th this this phrase that no one can help you with if you lose. Move funds into the non-custodial wallet, connect to you know the right UI, and avoid all these phishing attacks. Right, that are that are taking place. Deposit the right assets. Manage the risk. I mean, there's just so many layers that make it difficult for the average person to come into the space. And so, I think we're going to see more wallets, more products out there that actually abstract this away, where I can just come in with dollars and say, okay, now that I have dollars here and this regulated institution as a you know FDIC insured bank account, they can then convert those dollars into the appropriate stablecoin. They can then deposit that stablecoin into Aave, Compound, or maybe one of these new permission DeFi protocols like a Credex or a, or a Centrifuge, for example. The user itself doesn't have to know which wallet do I need to use, how do I store my funds, which stablecoin makes sense. It's all abstracted away for the for the end user. And then where it really gets interesting is if this wallet or product can layer on features that are complementary to, to the, the entire experience. One being insurance. Right, insurance has been a big missing piece in DeFi today. But let's say there is a, you know, you can lend on credits today for eight, nine, 10, 11%. Maybe there's an insurance layer that charges one or 2% on top of that. Um, and then the, the product or wallet takes a slight cut as well. And so the user's okay paying that fee because they get insurance. A lot of that's, a lot of the, the actual product itself is abstracted away. So what that could mean is DeFi is actually aggregating around a lot of these wallets, neo banks, these aggregators of capital. And that's not to say that. They're the ones who control DeFi. That's where all activity comes. I just think the vast majority of users will prefer that. There will still be a subset of users, probably both of us, including who are more sophisticated, who are comfortable taking on the risks of using crypto, who have no problem, you know, going direct to the DeFi application. Yeah, private key management still remains a huge challenge. I think huge. long term, I I really want private key management to kind of be a solved issue. I think outside of exchanges the wallet kind of will become the home for hopefully most Web3 activity and kind of what we've all 
originally kind of envisioned was like that self-sovereignty component and being able to actually hold whether cash or assets NFTs. Totally. Uh, but you're definitely right. It, it's extremely hard for a new person that's coming into the industry to uh, remember their private key and not have, get attacked from any phishing attacks, um, let alone like, as you mentioned, kind of onboarding into some of these more complex DeFi primitives. So from that front, how are you personally looking at kind of the different comparisons between some more permission versus permissionless DeFi? Is it purely on the front end or are you, is that also kind of including like the, um, as you were talking about earlier with uh, like institutions versus like circular retail? Yeah. So it's a, Permission, permission DeFi has been a big focus of ours recently. So we, as, as a firm, were very early investors in permissionless DeFi. So really investors in MakerDAO, Aave, Uniswap, these core primitives um, that are very much focused on the permissionless side, who are all kind of making inroads into the permission side as well. As the market has evolved over the past year or two, we're seeing a lot more interest in permission DeFi, given people want some legal protection some compliance in place. They want to have the proper guardrails. And I think that's how DeFi actually scales by 100x is when you have these proper guardrails in place, you're actually working with the right um, regulatory bodies and rules within each of your jurisdictions to make sure you know consumers are protected, you have the right disclosures, but you also still benefit from the advantages of DeFi in terms of transparency, time to settlement, cost, all these features which get us excited about, about DeFi. So we think about permission DeFi today you know, one, one example of an investment in the space is Credix and Credix has created this permissioned, um, you know, protocol that allows, you know, KYC borrowers and lenders to access capital, uh, in a fair, you know, still fairly open manner. You know, they've done, um, I think more than 30 million in originations. They just announced a $150 million pool. They have a ton of borrowers in the pipeline, but the whole vision there is look, DeFi itself, the, the financial rails using crypto has a ton of advantages that could disrupt the cost, the time to settlement, the transparency of existing financial rails, right? So they're using the advantages of crypto and DeFi rails without compromising on the compliance and regulatory side that gets large allocators, large users, um, regulated institutions involved. So um, I don't think it's either or. I don't think permission DeFi wins, permissionless DeFi loses, or I think both systems will exist in parallel. And that's really the beauty of crypto. It's just giving people more options. There are people who are comfortable using permissionless DeFi, um, but then there are going to be institutions who want to use permission DeFi. That's fully KYC. They have the right compliance and uh, kind of disclosures and legal protections in place. But the, the most important component is giving people that choice and giving the market that choice. And so our view is that you know, permission DeFi will also be a big part of this, the entire uh, DeFi stack. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I think that is the beautiful thing about uh, crypto is just having kind of that open permissionless backend and then people can kind of opt into whatever uh, requirements that they really want to, whether it's like permissionless or permissioned. Uh, it, is, it is cool. It's, it's very unique space. So on the permission DeFi, do you think that ultimately kind of manifests itself as in like permission pools or particularly how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think it's it's honestly a little bit too early to say, but 
I, I think we'll see a couple of different options. So one is permission pools, which we're seeing in, in several different protocols, like both sides are permissioned. Some protocols you're seeing one side is permissionless, one side is fully permissioned. Um, I think the, another variation is some places will just have a front end um, that KYC certain individuals um, to access the front end, let's say you're US-based or Europe-based, whatever. That could be one one scenario. The other kind of interesting um, you know, product idea that we've been exploring and talking to different entrepreneurs about is can you can you leverage the existing KYC infrastructure of a Coinbase and Binance to then kind of enhance the permissionless DeFi stack today? So what that could mean is a Coinbase or a Binance, you know, maybe they or a Kraken or any major uh, KYC institution or exchange issues an NFT that says, "Hey, I, you know, we're not going to say who this person is, what their background is, but we can tell you they've been through KYC. They're not on any OFAC list. They haven't been sanctioned." Right. And so it's almost like, what's the minimal amount of information I can show on chain through a non-transferable NFT or sold on token that then allows you to access DeFi. So that way it's not fully permissioned or fully permissionless. I do think there are these middle grounds um, that actually like bring together both sides quite effectively. Um, so that's like another variation we've been, you know, we've been thinking about. Interesting. I like that. Um, it, it would be refreshing to see some of that uh, be integrated uh, to bring some of the more institutional players into the space and get them comfortable. Uh, but on the NFT kind of front, uh, I think in Electric Capital's report, they also were stated 80% or 80-ish percent of new wallet uh, transactions or kind of first time transactions on chain were through an NFT lens. Um, and you also talked about gaming. Can you talk a little bit more like where your headspace is around the gaming front and NFTs? Did NFTs surprise you um, and kind of this last bull market or was it something that you guys were thinking out about uh, kind of even prior? Yeah, so we, we've been thinking about NFTs for quite some time. I got my first exposure with CryptoKitties back in fall of uh, 2017. Nice. Um, and I, I think what's what's really interesting about the gaming side is the role it's played in previous technology verticals and getting adoption and getting users on board, right? So you look at the early days of the internet, late 90s, early 2000s, multiplayer uh, is invented through uh, console-based uh, console based gaming and even just online gaming like RuneScape, right? Explodes the, you see the explosion in the number of users actually playing on chain. Same thing happens with mobile, right? You have mobile come out, you have Angry Birds, Clash of Clans, all these mobile-based games um, that get a ton of users into the mobile environment. But what it also does is it keeps them there, right? Like people are going to get a mobile phone, an iPhone, a smartphone, regardless, but it's like, what can you do? Like, it's not just call and text and email. It's like, oh, I can play these games. I'm actually living in this mobile phone more often. And then everyone starts building other apps and integrations into that. So I think we could see a similar type of, uh, you know, uh, outcome for Web3 and, and gaming. Well, Web3 itself, what pulls actual, you know, new users on chain is gaming itself. Um, gaming is obviously a massive industry. A lot of, you know, different players out there are exploring gaming, uh, you know, new Web3 games today. What I have struggled with is just kind of the quality of games. Um, I think yeah. this past cycle, to your question, like what surprised me is how much funding went into kind of pre-launch or brand new games, given, you know, games are take years to launch. Um, you know, most games don't get a ton of funding until they get some type of 
you know, traction or have some user base. Um, and then a lot of these games were quick to launch tokens. Um, well, their token companies <laughs> didn't make, you know, a ton of sense. And then the token is down 90% and then people stop playing the game. So I, I was surprised by how quickly the market jumped on, on funding actual games itself. And I think what I'm keeping an eye out for is not necessarily just web three based games that are, you know, inventing a new call of duty on chain, but what are the existing games um, that are widely popular, widely played that can now plug in web three components, whether it's a token economy, whether it's like a wallet, whether it's an NFT. I mean, just today, MetaMask and Unity announced that the MetaMask SDK will be uh, deployed in the Unity store. So now if you're building on Unity, you can use the MetaMask SDK to integrate wallet functionality in your game natively. I mean, just the fact that users can now have a MetaMask wallet is super powerful for an existing game. Um, so I think we're at this interesting intersection where I, I'd like to see games that are more fun, uh, you yeah. know, uh, and actually build a user base and then integrate the Web3 components, maybe launch a token if and when it makes sense. I think we saw a lot of games launch a token too quickly or raise funding too quickly on the premise that Web3 and gaming is a massive unlock when those specific unlocks still need to be figured out. Totally, totally. Yeah, I I think the whole token thing could probably be said for a lot of projects in the Web3 space, not a, yep. only uh, gaming. But I personally played quite a bit of RuneScape and also uh, World of Warcraft. And I think at least for others that I talked to uh, that played those games early on seem to be well-equipped to <laughs> for Web3 more broadly. But definitely echo the sentiments on the gaming front. I guess on a high level, because a lot of games um, in the investing space, it's almost kind of winner take all. How are you like personally approaching it? Uh, are, are you thinking about like trying to find like early tractions in games, as you mentioned, or... Uh, is it just a space that you're kind of admiring from afar as your um, kind of as an onboarding tool for Web3? Yeah, so I, I actually think infrastructure on the gaming side is super, super interesting. So, you know, I invested in you know, Mutablex earlier on. Um, we've invested in some NFT infrastructure, invested in an ecosystem called Internet Game, which is building a lot of interesting uh, you know, mobile-based and, and easy-to-play games. Um, for the Web3 space. So it, I would say from an investment perspective, the infrastructure um, is a little bit more compelling than specific games because, you know, as you know, there are thousands and thousands of games launched. Very few actually get a user base. Then an even smaller subset are able to retain that user base. And then a tiny yeah. subset are actually able to monetize, right? And so we, we would rather invest in infrastructure. We're almost game agnostic, um, you know, and, and support kind of, any number of games, you know, and the infrastructure kind of wins, um, wins regardless. But as a, you know, growing up as a, as a gamer myself, I, I haven't found many Web3 games that are, have been a ton of fun yet. I think we're, we're getting there. Um, but I think that the path to launching a Web3 game takes a lot more time and energy than, say, launching a DeFi protocol, right? There's a very clear path to launching a DeFi protocol. But to launch a game, it just takes months, years, I mean, Five plus years. I mean, some of the largest games and you know outside of Web three stuff like you know GTA and Red Dead and Skyrim just took years and massive amounts of budget. So I think we're a little bit uh, you know we're, we're some time away from some of these games. But a vertical that I am in gaming that I am quite excited about is these easy to play 
indie games that incorporate yep. right? So, you know, if, if, if the audience hasn't checked out Internet Game, I, I'd encourage them to check out Internet Game. They, they have a couple of seasons of people playing these these live games. And their entire thesis and something that we, we really liked is it's not about building a Call of Duty on-chain or a Fortnite on-chain. It's about can someone just pick up a phone, play a very easy-to-play e- easy game, um, and in return they get tokens or NFTs or they're part of this Web3 ecosystem for playing these very easy to find games. They're not coming in expecting Call of Duty and playing some very low quality game. They're expecting yeah. an easy to pick up game that's social, that's fun. There's some financial reward tied to it, something like HQ Trivia. Um, so that's like a vertical that I would say we're, we're excited about. I definitely agree. I, I think the early kind of hit games in Web3 or crypto are going to look much more like Among Us than like Call of Duty, a lot more right. simplistic. Uh, and I, and I think that's okay. I, I think yeah. that's totally okay because I think when gamers are coming in, I don't think they're coming in or they shouldn't be coming in just because they see an NFT that's uh, they want to flip or a token that they can sell. Like, there needs to be something fun and social that Web3 uniquely enables. And there is. Um, but if the, if the focus is just, hey, we have an asset you can flip or you can own this asset and you can really sell it, we haven't really found a game that people like to play. It's a... Uh, you know, we're basically a DeFi yield farming with a fancy yeah. front end. <laughs> I, 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 I agree there. Uh, on that front, I mean, gaming is inherently social and social is probably um, another prime kind of use case that blockchain could ultimately be integrated with, um, especially on like the creator side, uh, kind of either supplementing or replacing income on YouTube or various other aspects. How are you personally kind of approaching uh, social and thinking about that area in the crypto landscape? Yeah, I mean, social social is an interesting one. I, I, I think I first came across this vertical with Scent back in the day. There was also Steam. There were a couple of these players, and maybe they're a little bit too early, but the ideas were super interesting. Now you have stuff like Lens and Farcaster, uh, Desos, some of these different social protocols. I, I think when people started building in this space and when we talked to founders, a core part of the decentralized social thesis was, hey, Twitter, Facebook, Google, um, all these large tech companies and social media companies are collecting your data, data, harvesting it, selling your data. So now come back and take ownership of your of your data. Yeah. I don't know if that's really resonating with the market. Um, I, I don't know if there's a ton of users out there um, who care that much about, hey, so companies are harvesting my data, they're selling my data. I think there's an ethos. I think people talk about it, but when you actually look at the numbers, if that's the case, why haven't we seen a ton of users migrate over? And I think you've started to see a little bit of that with Mastodon. Farcaster, but again, we're not talking about tens of millions of people, right? It's it's yeah. a relatively small small group. Now that could be that could mean kind of one piece out of many that gets them to move over. The the other kind of big one I would say is censorship resistance, right? Like Twitter and everything we've seen in the past couple months, there is some censorship going on. And regardless of which side you're on, if you want something that's a little bit more neutral, a little bit more open, decentralized social can can provide that. And then I would say users and just consumers today, I think they're going to follow the content creators. Like where are the content creators going, right? I think that's what a lot of TikTok to blow up into a quick period of time, just given all the content creators there. And so content creators, I think first need an incentive to move over. Then you see massive users move over. And for content creators to move over, I actually think there's value on the monetization side, right? So, you know, everyone's kind of seen those videos and articles about people having millions of streams on Spotify or 
tens of millions or hundreds of millions of views on TikTok or YouTube, and they're not making that much from that, right? From the actual platform itself. A lot of that's ad revenue, which is separate, but just from the actual platform itself. Um, so if you're able to figure out a way to use some of the Web3 rails, whether it's stable coins, tokens, or really just N- NFTs, you can monetize your audience um, in a much more effective manner. You can you can uh, go after the super fans, focus on them versus trying to focus on you know all users. And so I think once there's a clear kind of monetary incentive for creators to move over, which I think we're getting there, you could start to see a large number of users move over. And I don't think it needs to be like 100 million people move over from TikTok to a decentralized social solution. It's how do you get the million super fans to move from TikTok to this new platform? And I think that's what the creators are going after versus trying to get all their creators to to move over. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I I think the privacy aspect was kind of the rallying call initially. But like you said, uh, we actually wrote an article about talking about the preferences of early adopters are normally not the same as the mass adoption. And those will most likely ultimately shift over time. Uh, And I I think privacy is definitely one example of that. But the creator aspect, I think, is super interesting. Just now, um, even if you, I think, look up or recent surveys have kind of shown the no longer popular job is like uh, when you ask kids, it's not an astronaut or a doctor, it's a YouTuber or a TikToker. And, and so, yeah, yeah, so on that front, uh, being able to kind of, empower even smaller creators to monetize their work or as you were mentioning these super fans is going to be super fascinating and these early iterations with diso farcaster um lens i i'm super fascinated by them because i think eventually one of them will crack it and it will kind of open up the floodgates for these creators to move in and hopefully the audience was as you mentioned will follow as well totally yeah, and I think on, on the creator side, um, I think that the existing model is get as many followers, likes, subscribers as you can. You'll get some revenue directly from the platform. You'll make all your money on most of your money on ad revenue or sponsorship, stuff like that. But I think the model that we're all, th- that I think a lot of people in the space are thinking about is, you know, how do you focus on, uh, the super fans, the people who are willing to pay the most for your content, who really appreciate your content? Um, and really focus on them. You don't ignore the rest, but you really kind of focus on them. Um, and that could pay dividends for, to your point, a lot of the smaller creators. I mean, there are artists that we all listen to probably have 25, 50K, 100K maybe listeners on Spotify. They're probably making nothing from Spotify. Yeah. YouTube. But if you ask, let's say if you could send a message to, you know, 50K of the, uh, you know, if you have 50K listeners, if you could pull 50K and you ask, how many of you would be willing to pay you know, a hundred dollars a year to, to get either exclusive access to music, early access to music, early access to concert ticket, Skype session. I mean, there's so many ways a creator, to, a creator can monetize their time. Would there be at least, you know, a thousand people? So if you have 50K listeners, a thousand, so 2% of your listeners that are willing to pay a hundred bucks a year, you're still at a hundred thousand dollars a year off 2% of your user base, off a very small user base already compared to yeah. the, the massive artists of the world. Um, and I think that totally shifts the revenue opportunity for, for careers. You don't have to get to 5 million, 10 million, these large, uh, these large numbers just to, just to make a living. And what that also does is that means the actual ability to put out more content, more creative pieces of work, which is I think, beneficial for everyone in society increases. So people can actually do this as a side hustle or even full time if they wanted to, 
versus today, it's just not very sustainable. Yeah, definitely uh, echo all of those sentiments. It's something that I'm like probably one of the more exciting categories that I'm looking forward to in 2023. Um, on that kind of I mean, all of these, whether it's social or gaming, uh, even DeFi with like order books, I think going back to like some of the base layer and the infrastructure kind of components, are there any particular applications that you bias towards like the lower latency networks or layer twos that you feel like the infrastructure like has to be built on some of these or in large part, are you kind of agnostic to the base infrastructure, which people build upon? I would say we're a little bit more agnostic. I mean, obviously, we have a fairly concentrated uh, portfolio of different layer one and layer two um, investments. But again, going back to how early we are, I don't think the average user will care, hey, I'm on Solana, I'm on Avalanche, I'm on a layer two, if most of that will be abstracted away, if they have you know guaranteed uptime, if the security is there in the network, um, a lot of this will be abstracted away. So I it, I don't think most users will need to know or understand the nuance. I mean, if, if, if we were in a state of the world where, you know, or e- even take a look in 2021 for a couple hundred thousand or a few million DAOs when we hit the peak in terms of on-chain activity, if you ask most of them to like, hey, can you explain like the security and technical trade-offs between Solana, Avalanche, these L2s, it's very confusing, right? And even for yeah. in this space, there isn't definitively a right answer. It's, it's, it's a game of trade-offs. Um, and so with that being said, I think to, to build something with the expectation that users will focus in, uh, intensely on the underlying L1 or L2, I think misses the broader market opportunity. Now, there are sets of applications and, and users, very small subset, who care a lot about which chain, which ecosystem you're developing on. But I think for an average uh, you know, consumer app, an average gaming app, an average social app, they won't care. Where this may really come up is, let's say you're talking about DeFi, right? And you're talking about, let's say there's an application building a you know, remittance company, right? Using stable coins um, on chain. Where are they going to feel most comfortable settling tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars today? Arguably, it's Ethereum, right? I mean, maybe they have some preference for Sun, maybe they have some preference for Avalanche, but I would argue that Ethereum is probably in the top three there, right? If not their, their top choice, maybe it's a little bit of, maybe it's primarily Ethereum, maybe it's Samsung, maybe it's Avalanche. So there are maybe some high value use cases today that I think the end users, whether it's an exchange or an OTC desk, may actually prefer to settle on something that's arguably seen as, you know, more secure, more decentralized, which is a whole other topic. Um, <laughs> but I think like a couple of years on the line, if we expect users to the average user to dig through and understand the security trade-offs between different L1s and L2s, I I feel like we haven't made as much progress as we should have as an industry. I I definitely agree there. I think ultimately people won't care. I think where they will care and maybe like slightly pushing back is just like uh, prices in terms of gas fees and then also like the real world latencies where some of that stuff can't be abstracted away. I mean, I guess if you were slightly removed i guess some of those could be but other than that i i do agree that most people won't care but if there's high gas high gas fees uh i think people will have a little bit of an issue with things but well you know. even, even in a couple of years like i i don't know if l1s would be able to compete on gas and gas fees today are already incredibly you know incredibly low and so if the view is like hey we're going to be able to 
sustainably compete just on gas fees. Like, I don't know if that's enough. Maybe, maybe it's a question of how much, right? If you're like 10% or 20% cheaper than an alternative, will people move over just from that? If you're 10x or 100x cheaper, I mean, obviously it's completely different. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the end customer, like, assuming we're in a state of the world where gas fees aren't 100x different, right? If, you know, one chain is 0.001, the other chain is like 0.0, you know, <laughs> we're all really, yeah. really low. Um, I, I, I personally do think that there's going to be like 100x differences uh, in some of these chains, but that goes down a very technical rabbit hole. But yeah, I, I, I do think there will be some differences. Um, just there's a lot of like small, minute details that people and trade offs of like the architectures, which unfortunately, I think as investors, we have to know, but the retail definitely won't care and shouldn't care even on like the decentralization front. Um, but yeah, it, that gets a, down a whole another rabbit yeah, hole that we'll, probably we'll don't do have time to do. <laughs> sure. Um, but a couple other things uh, that we kind of like briefly talked about initially were like remittances. Uh, I think one company that you or Parify recently invested in was Tippin. Could you share a little bit more on like your thoughts there and how Tippin will play a little bit of a role on uh, just payments more broadly? So Tippin, do you mean like the like the proof of physical work, like token incentivized physical infrastructure networks or like just a specific company that's I believe it was a company. Maybe okay. I'm mistaken. No, no, all good. We we didn't um, invest in a company called uh, Tippin. Okay. It's more so like the label for like proof of physical work, like token incentivized physical infrastructure network. But on remittances itself, I mean, we as, as as we think about just the landscape itself, we think stable coins are obviously going to benefit a ton from this. And there was actually a really interesting article that Uniswap put out. I encourage everyone to go check that out. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. They talk about you know forex and remittances and some of the value. Uh, the benefits you get from using stable coins. And that's something that's kind of been in the back of my mind. Like why haven't stable coins really cracked um, remittances, uh, e-commerce or payments? Like using USCC to buy coffee, it doesn't really exist anywhere. Like, yeah, at the conferences, like people download yeah. their wallet. And I think that's maybe a, a lot of this comes down to the large users of stable coins today, whether it's people in developed countries Exchanges, market makers, I mean, they don't need to use stable coins. They have access to credit, right? And they get paid uh, by, by institutions to, to buy things. But stable coins haven't really worked their way down to developing countries. I think they are. I mean, some of the stuff that's going on in Venezuela and Argentina, like they're starting to get, get down there. But that could just be a massive unlock for, for users, um, especially in those countries. Um, and, and an interesting stat is, you know, last year, you know, stable coins, and I think specifically USDC settled something like eight trillion of, of oh, value wow. on, on yeah. chain. Visa did something like fourteen trillion in in value uh, in t- terms of the total network, uh, total kind of volume of transactions in the network. I mean, those are mind; those are insanely high numbers for a very small set of users. Like we spoke about, a couple yeah. hundred thousand daily active users. Like, what happens when that number is five million, ten million? Like, how big can stablecoin volume really get? Definitely. Yeah, no, it, it is fascinating. I mean, even like looking at the OpenSea volumes for how many users they have or even uh, Uniswap. I mean, I think last time I checked, both of those had less than 5 million total active addresses that have ever interacted with their contracts, but have done billions and billions of volume. Um, pretty insane. 
going on? Um, the market has definitely shifted, though, from, I mean, 2021, uh, kind of definitely bull market. Uh, and then lots of things changed. Um, lots of deleveraging events in 2022. And from a founder perspective, this also has some pretty big uh, changes in how they approach their business and how they even go about fundraising. So could you talk about a little bit about how you're communicating with the founders that you work with on the landscape and how the environment has changed more broadly? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, this is definitely top of mind and where we're spending probably most of our time right now just supporting our founders. Um, you know, a, a couple of scenarios come to mind. So as we think about just runway and treasury management, this wasn't really top of mind for the entire space, right? People kind of yeah. always felt like they were uh, one round away. They didn't have to worry about runway and burn or really expenses because there's so much capital in the space, so much froth. You saw kind of pre, I'm sure as you guys are looking at opportunities as well, pre-launch deals at insane valuations that today aren't, aren't even getting done. And so we've been emphasizing the founders like really focus on runway, really focus on burn. And what that can mean is, you know, cutting costs um, on the personnel side, cutting costs with service providers. The other big area is just simply counterparty risk. Like where are you storing your funds? Yeah. Right? So yeah. you know, during the FTX kind of debacle, we were on calls with our founders all times of the day and night, just helping them find new solutions. And many times, one of the most fascinating takeaways I had from that is one of the only solutions they had was Gnosis Safe or a MetaMask. Like they couldn't get another exchange in time or there was some issue. And it's like, again, it shows you the, the power of crypto at a time when no one else, no other exchange or every broker or every kind of centralized player in the space was facing challenges. MetaMask or a Gnosis Safe or any non-custodial wallet, a Phantom, they were there to support um, you know, these businesses and entities. And there were a lot of companies in the space that had to move funds to a MetaMask or a Safe um, you know, just to make sure, you know, everything is, is safe. So that's a, that's a big focus of, uh, I would say that we're pushing on a lot of the founders today. Another one is just proper financial discipline and reporting. I think this was another big gap in the market over the past couple of years. You know, do you have proper income statements, balance sheets? Are you keeping track of all of your, you know, expenses? Are you projecting out your expenses in the most effective manner? Are you counting for different scenarios, right? Assuming like you don't hit your revenue targets, or there's a massive a loss in the customer side, um, you know, are you accounting for these different scenarios and planning for the worst? You know, assume you can't raise for the next two, three years. Are you good to go? Like these are all the kind of scenarios we're helping founders think through. And then that's that's more on the fundraising, treasury management side. The other big area that you know I've been spending a lot of time on is really product. So in 2021 and, and in 2020, and, if, and, and I would say the first half of 2022. A lot of teams were launching products, whether it was DeFi, NFTs, gaming. Um, and I think now um, they look back and they say, hey, wait a second, that act, that idea or this product doesn't really have product market fit, right? It may have been driven by a speculation-driven user base. Uh, the activity may have been driven by short-term token incentives, or it may have just been driven by prices being higher, right? If you're a money market, for example, and people want to borrow for, for leverage. So now I think a lot of founders, which is very healthy for the space, are reevaluating their product roadmap. Like, what do end users actually want? How differentiated is my product? Do I actually need a token? If I need a token for this protocol to survive, it probably doesn't have product market fit and there's some serious underlying issues. So just helping founders think through pivots, 
um, and, and, and what are some new market opportunities to go after, uh, which is a big positive for the space. I think the fact that we're in this bear market, I think you'd mentioned this earlier, some of the best companies are going to be built. You know, OpenSea, exactly. Uniswap, Compound, uh, MakerDAO, so many large winners, quote unquote, were built during the bear market because it forces you to be focused, forces you to be disciplined. Um, and you can't be distracted and go after different uh, products. You have to be very focused. So I think we're seeing that across the board, which is positive. Yeah. All, all uh, wise words of wisdom. Yeah. I, I think burn rate is definitely a big one. And then if you, I would say there's, I don't know, it's, it's even, I mean, I guess from the volume standpoint, you could debate or there's definitely products that have found product market fit for their, in large part, there's very few applications that like are concretely or not on the web two scale, but they're on the crypto scale. There's definitely a handful, but not hundreds or thousands that have found product market fit on that front. Like, is there any particular things that you, when talking with founders kind of give them advice on, or um, is it kind of just like ideating on like product, uh, marketing, all kind of the normal stuff that kind of goes into trying to get a loyal fan base? So I think it varies if uh, a product is has been launched or it's not launched. It's a pre-launch date. So if you look at a product that has been launched, if you're assessing, you know, what is the current status of my product and should I pivot um, or should I continue down this path? We spend a lot of time looking at what is the actual activity and usage of the product, right? Who is actually using your product in, in a protocol, sometimes very difficult to see, but also sometimes a lot easier to see than in a traditional company because everything's on chain. Um, and you yeah. can kind of see like, who are the large users of the protocol? Do you know who they are? Can you talk to them to understand why they're actually using the protocol? How concentrated is the activity, right? A lot of times in, in DeFi protocols, you saw like 10 wallets account for the vast majority of activity that can kind of give a, a sign that you have product market fit. And then the next layer is asking them what is uh, incentivized versus unincentivized activity, right? Are they using this because there is some incentive that's being provided either by you through a token, through some subsidized rate? Is there a partner providing incentives or there is some incentive mechanism in place that's keeping them there? Or is it unincentivized activity, which I think is a true sign of product market fit, which is they're just using it because there's simply a better, better product, right? So that's that's a big, big component. I would say the other, the other component is just what does the, the competitive landscape look like? If, if there's anything we've noticed over the past year or so is a bunch of founders are pivoting into new categories, right? So like how competitive is your space right now? Like just use an example. If you're trying to launch a DEX on Ethereum right now or a money market on Ethereum right now, I mean, you're, it's a massive uphill battle, right? It's just an absolutely massive uphill battle. And I think there are dozens of verticals like that that are in similar, similar spots. So that's something else we've been kind of pushing and understanding product differentiation. Um, and I would say, like, if a product is pre-launch, this is where we've been pushing a lot of founders to understand, you know, go talk to customers. If you're a DeFi protocol, it's very easy to figure out who are the large, you know, DeFi users out there, whether it's funds, exchanges, market makers, large users. Set up interviews with them. Just get their feedback. I think after 10, 20 different interviews and calls, you get a good sense for what are people actually looking for, right? What does the customer want? And I think in Web3, there hasn't been as much of a focus on the customer or the end user um, than there has been in traditional, you know, web two startups or traditional software startups. And I think tokens distorted a lot of activity. And you yeah. right? Token came out and suddenly your TVL is up into the to the right and you think, wow, there's product market fit. People are using it. And so now we're saying, okay, like don't launch a token too quickly. Figure out what your customer actually wants. 
if and when a token makes sense, maybe consider it. Um, but it shouldn't be the default. 100%. 100%. When I was uh, leading product at Tesla for the supercharging network, we'd often call uh, charging customers and just talk with them. And I, I think some of the stuff from the Web2 world that was kind of commonplace uh, has been forgotten when number goes up too quickly or the wrong incentives are in place. And so it's a great reminder to go back to the basics, talk to your customers, call them, and actually <laughs> learn why they're using the products. Uh, I think that's very valuable advice. Yeah, uh, looking for on the Web2 side, what one, one point I would make on that um, is just think about LTV and CAC. Right, like LTV and CAC, every SaaS startup out there is looking at that like lifetime value versus customer acquisition cost. And then now at a lot of protocols out there that are emitting tokens, if that's their CAC, right, they're giving several dollars away, the lifetime value is how much in fees or some, some type of metric I'm getting or ROI I'm getting back. If they're spending like five dollars, you get a dollar of fees or value, it's not a great <laughs> it's not a great ratio, right? Yeah. I think people haven't really done that work for a lot of protocols, which is sure you're giving away tokens to, you know, acquire new users, extend ownership, et cetera. But if you're giving away a lot more than you're actually benefiting, then we should kind of revisit that. So you know, that's another area that I think is, is relevant to you. Well, a lot of founders, uh, I mean, definitely in the bull market, just kind of speed ran the idea, idea, ideal, I, why can't I say it? Ideal. I, uh, I, the maze of ideas. <laughs> I'll just say that. The idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. Um, and I think part of that was also experimenting with tokens and everything that we ultimately watched unfold in the 2020, 2021 bull market. Uh, and yeah, definitely wise, wise words to kind of go back to the basics, talk with your customers. But looking forward to kind of like 2023, I mean, we obviously talked on like high level like categories and like even like went a little bit more granular into each of them. But is there anything particular that you're excited about for, for 2023 and what you're uh, like keeping a keen eye out for? Yeah, ton, ton going on. Um, and I wish there were, uh, you know, obviously podcasts like yours are, are covering a lot of the fundamentals and a lot of the substance, but I wish that a lot of the media publications are doing the same. Yeah, there, there's a, there's a ton, uh, ton to unpack there. Um, I continue to be very excited about DeFi, um, both in permissionless DeFi, but also permission DeFi, like we discussed, a lot going on there. Um, there are a lot of institutional allocators that are looking at the space and, People think like, hey, with the FTX situation, they're no longer there. They moved on, and that's not what we're seeing. There's a lot of sophisticated institutions who, with permission DeFi or even with permissionless DeFi, can't ignore the value, whether transparency, cost, time to settlement of DeFi. And so these sophisticated institutions aren't just backing away when prices go down. They're doing their work, understanding the fundamentals. I think it's going to be huge for the space. Um, I would say this... A couple other themes that, that really stand out. I continue to believe stablecoins are arguably crypto's killer use case, and we're just scratching the surface there. Yep. Um, so regulated, collateralized stablecoins, getting them in the hands of people that really need them, whether in developing countries or, or people who just want access to 24-7 money, I think will continue to be a big driver of crypto usage and, and adoption. Um, excited about a lot of the stuff going on on the identity side. I think this is... Uh, 
super underappreciated vertical of, of crypto. So when I look at what's going on with ENS or even layer three or some of these protocols, I think identity has been a big missing part of crypto. And I think a lot of these primitives are starting to, 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 to be here and, and starting to be built that actually enables the next wave of DeFi, Web3 gaming, social. Like once you have identity, that supercharges DeFi, that supercharges social, that supercharges Web3 gaming in a way that, you know, the existing system just doesn't, doesn't scale. So that's another interesting, you know, vertical. Um, T-pins or, or token incentivized physical infrastructure networks or also called proof of physical work. I, I think, again, a super underrated part of the crypto stack. There's the Helium's, Hypenappers of the world, um, WeatherXM, all these all these protocols that are issuing tokens to get people to do stuff in the physical world, lay down certain infrastructure, buy a device, provide some service. We're in the early days. I know there's a lot of criticisms around, hey, the tokens are distributed. Um, what's the use case for the token? Are these models sustainable? Um, but I actually think there's a path forward there that's that's super interesting. We could probably do an entire podcast just on the real world uh, incentives that tokens could play in. Totally, yeah. It's 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 fascinating to see with Helium today. I mean, they they laid you know what was it hundreds of thousands of, of hotspots on the IoT side. I think they have thousands on the five G side, like a T Mobile dish. I mean, it's we have to see what the demand side looks like and how the network actually performs and relative to centralized components. But this is a brand new paradigm. Like getting people to do stuff in the physical world through incent- has always been something that's, that's very difficult to do. And I think that it, that's enabled with crypto payments, with tokens. It doesn't even have to be a, a new token. It can even be stable coins. Like if a company wants a large set of users to do something, paying them in a micro via micropayments in a very quick manner is a lot easier than Hey, I'll give you a referral code or I'll give you like 10% off or here's like a gift card or like how, how does, how does like if you're, you know, just, just use an example. If you're Google and you want, uh, you know, more concrete, um, you know, images or for, for Google map, you know, kind of similar to what iMapper, iMapper is doing. Like how do you pay millions of people in a very scalable manner? I mean, you're just going to wire people money, ACH money. Like so even the stablecoin rails itself can be plugged into some of these. Uh, existing web two companies. I wouldn't be surprised if we, you know, if we see something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, perfect closing thoughts. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Appreciate you, uh, sharing all your thoughts and kind of historical, uh, point of view and also what you're excited about going forward. If there's anybody that wants to get in touch with you or get in touch with Parify, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, I think, Probably the best way is just DM me on, on Twitter. Um, you know, you can keep my DMs open. You can, can reach out if you want to chat more, if there's anything else, um, you know, um, I, I can help with. But yeah, this was super fun, Logan. Appreciate you you having me on. And uh, yeah, it's a really fun conversation. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you.